Chapter One of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter One. It was Sunday, and according to his custom on that day, McTeague took his dinner at two in the afternoon at the car conductor's coffee joint on Polk Street. He had a thick gray soup, heavy, underdone meat, very hot, on a cold plate, two kinds of vegetables, and a sort of suet pudding, full of strong butter and sugar. On his way back to his office, one block above, he stopped at Joe Frenna's saloon and bought a pitcher of steam beer. It was his habit to leave the pitcher there on his way to dinner. Once in his office, or as he called it on his signboard, dental parlors, he took off his coat and shoes, unbuttoned his vest, and, having crammed his little stove full of coke, lay back in his operating chair at the bay window, reading the paper, drinking his beer, and smoking his huge porcelain pipe while his food digested, cropful, stupid, and warm. By and by, gorged with steam beer, and overcome by the heat of the room, the cheap tobacco, and the effects of his heavy meal, he dropped off to sleep. Late in the afternoon his canary bird, in its gilt cage just over his head, began to sing. He woke slowly, finished the rest of his beer, very flat and stale by this time, and taking down his concertina from the bookcase, where in weekdays it kept the company of seven volumes of Allen's Practical Dentist, played upon it some half-dozen very mournful airs. McTeague looked forward to these Sunday afternoons as a period of relaxation and enjoyment. He invariably spent them in the same fashion. These were his only pleasures, to eat, to smoke, to sleep, and to play upon his concertina. The six lugubrious airs that he knew always carried him back to the time when he was a carboy at the Big Dipper Mine in Placer County, ten years before. He remembered the years he had spent there trundling the heavy cars of ore in and out of the tunnel under the direction of his father. For thirteen days of each fortnight his father was a steady, hard-working shift boss of the mine. Every other Sunday he became an irresponsible animal, a beast, a brute, crazy with alcohol. McTeague remembered his mother, too, who, with the help of the Chinamen, cooked for forty miners. She was an overworked drudge, fiery and energetic for all that, filled with the one idea of having her son rise in life and enter a profession. The chance had come at last when the father died, corroded with alcohol, collapsing in a few hours. Two or three years later a traveling dentist visited the mine and put up his tent near the bunkhouse. He was more or less of a charlatan, but he fired Mrs. McTeague's ambition and young McTeague went away with him to learn his profession. He had learnt it after a fashion, mostly by watching the charlatan operate. He had read many of the necessary books, but he was too hopelessly stupid to get much benefit from them. Then one day at San Francisco had come the news of his mother's death. She had left him some money, not much, but enough to set him up in business. So he had cut loose from the charlatan, and had opened his dental parlors on Polk Street, an accommodation street of small shops in the residence quarter of the town. Here he had slowly collected a clientele of butcher boys, shop girls, drug clerks, and car conductors. He made but few acquaintances. Polk Street called him the doctor, and spoke of his enormous strength. For McTeague was a young giant, carrying his huge shock of blonde hair six feet three inches from the ground, moving his immense limbs, heavy with ropes of muscle, slowly, ponderously. His hands were enormous, red, and covered with a fell of stiff yellow hair. They were hard as wooden mallets strong as vices, the hands of the old-time carboy. Often he dispensed with forceps and extracted a refractory tooth with his thumb and finger. His head was square-cut, 
angular, the jaw salient, like that of the carnivora. McTeague's mind was as his body, heavy, slow to act, sluggish. Yet there was nothing vicious about the man. Altogether he suggested the draft horse, immensely strong, stupid, docile, obedient. When he opened his dental parlors, he felt that his life was a success, that he could hope for nothing better. In spite of the name, there was but one room. It was a corner room on the second floor over the branch post office, and faced the street. McTeague made it do for a bedroom as well, sleeping on the big bed lounge against the wall opposite the window. There was a washstand behind the screen in the corner where he manufactured his molds. In the round bay window were his operating chair, his dental engine, and the movable rack on which he laid out his instruments. Three chairs, a bargain at the second-hand store, ranged themselves against the wall with military precision underneath a steel engraving of the court of Lorenzo de' Medici, which he had bought because there were a great many figures in it for the money. Over the bed lounge hung a rifle manufacturer's advertisement calendar, which he never used. The other ornaments were a small marble-topped center table covered with back numbers of the American system of dentistry, a stone pug dog sitting before the little stove, and a thermometer. A stand of shelves occupied one corner, filled with the seven volumes of Allen's Practical Dentist. On the top shelf, McTeague kept his concertina and a bag of birdseed for the canary. The whole place exhaled a mingled odor of bedding, creosote, and ether. But for one thing, McTeague would have been perfectly contented. Just outside his window was his signboard, a modest affair that read, Dr. McTeague, Dental Parlors, Gas Given. But that was all. It was his ambition, his dream, to have projecting from that corner window a huge gilded tooth, a molar with enormous prongs, something gorgeous and attractive. He would have it some day. On that he was resolved, but as yet such a thing was far beyond his means. When he had finished the last of his beer, McTeague slowly wiped his lips and huge yellow mustache with the side of his hand. Bull-like, he heaved himself laboriously up, and, going to the window, stood looking down into the street. The street never failed to interest him. It was one of those cross-streets peculiar to western cities, situated in the heart of the residence quarter, but occupied by small tradespeople who lived in the rooms above their shops, there were corner drug stores with huge jars of red, yellow, and green liquids in their windows, very brave and gay. Stationer's stores, where illustrated weeklies were tacked upon bulletin boards, barber shops with cigar stands in their vestibules, sad-looking plumber's offices, cheap restaurants, in whose windows one saw piles of unopened oysters weighted down by cubes of ice, and china pigs, and cows knee-deep in layers of white beans. At one end of the street, McTeague could see the huge powerhouse of the cable line. Immediately opposite him was a great market, while farther on, over the chimney stacks of the intervening houses, the glass roof of some huge public baths glittered like crystal in the afternoon sun. Underneath him the branch post office was opening its doors, as was its custom between two and three o'clock on Sunday afternoons. An acrid odor of ink rose upward to him. Occasionally a cable car passed trundling heavily, with a strident whirring of jostled glass windows. On weekdays the street was very lively. It woke to its work about seven o'clock, at the time when the newsboys made their appearance together with the day laborers. The laborers went trudging past in a straggling file. Plumbers' apprentices, their pockets stuffed with sections of lead pipe, tweezers, and pliers. Carpenters, carrying nothing but their little pasteboard lunch baskets painted to imitate leather, Gangs of street workers, their overalls soiled with yellow clay, their picks and long-handled shovels over their shoulders, plasterers, spotted with lime from head to foot. 
this little army of workers, tramping steadily in one direction, met and mingled with other toilers of a different description, conductors and swingmen of the cable company going on duty, heavy-eyed night clerks from the drug stores on their way home to sleep, roundsmen returning to the precinct police station to make their night report, and Chinese market gardeners teetering past under their heavy baskets. The cable cars began to fill up. All along the street could be seen the shopkeepers taking down their shutters. Between seven and eight the street breakfasted. Now and then a waiter from one of the cheap restaurants crossed from one sidewalk to the other, balancing on one palm a tray covered with a napkin. Everywhere was the smell of coffee and of frying steaks. A little later, following in the path of the day laborers, came the clerks and shop girls, dressed with a certain cheap smartness, always in a hurry, glancing apprehensively at the powerhouse clock. Their employers followed an hour or so later. On the cable cars, for the most part, whiskered gentlemen with huge stomachs, reading the morning papers with great gravity, bank cashiers and insurance clerks with flowers in their buttonholes. At the same time, the school children invaded the street, filling the air with a clamor of shrill voices, stopping at the stationer's shops, or idling a moment in the doorways of the candy stores. For over half an hour they held possession of the sidewalks, then suddenly disappeared, leaving behind one or two stragglers who hurried along with great strides of their little thin legs, very anxious and preoccupied. Toward eleven o'clock the ladies from the Great Avenue, a block above Polk Street, made their appearance, promenading the sidewalks leisurely, deliberately. They were at their morning's marketing. They were handsome women, beautifully dressed. They knew by name their butchers and grocers and vegetable men. From his window McTeague saw them in front of the stalls, gloved and veiled and daintily shod, the subservient provision men at their elbows, scribbling hastily in the order books. They all seemed to know one another, these grand ladies from the fashionable avenue. Meetings took place here and there, a conversation was begun, others arrived, groups were formed, little impromptu receptions were held before the chopping blocks of butcher's stalls or on the sidewalk, around boxes of berries and fruit. From noon to evening the population of the street was of a mixed character. The street was busiest at that time. A vast and prolonged murmur arose, the mingled shuffling of feet, the rattle of wheels, the heavy trundling of cable cars. At four o'clock the school children once more swarmed the sidewalks, again disappearing with surprising suddenness. At six the great homeward march commenced. The cars were crowded, the laborers thronged the sidewalks, the newsboys chanted the evening papers. Then all at once the street fell quiet. Hardly a soul was in sight. The sidewalks were deserted. It was supper hour. Evening began, and one by one a multitude of lights, from the demoniac glare of the druggist's windows to the dazzling blue whiteness of the electric globes, grew thick from street corner to street corner. Once more the street was crowded. Now there was no thought but for amusement. The cable cars were loaded with theater-goers, men in high hats and young girls in furred opera cloaks. On the sidewalks were groups and couples, the plumber's apprentices, the girls of the ribbon counters, the little families that lived on the second stories over their shops, the dressmakers, the small doctors, the harness makers. All the various inhabitants of the street were abroad, strolling idly from shop window to shop window, taking the air after the day's work. Groups of girls collected on the corners, talking and laughing very loud, making remarks upon the young men that passed them. The tamale men appeared. A band of salvationists began to sing before a saloon. Then, little by little, Polk Street dropped back to solitude. Eleven o'clock struck from the powerhouse clock. Lights were extinguished. At one o'clock the cable stopped, leaving an abrupt silence in the air. All at once it seemed very still. 
The ugly noises were the occasional footfalls of a policeman and the persistent calling of ducks and geese in the closed market. The street was asleep. Day after day, McTeague saw the same panorama unroll itself. The bay window of his dental parlors was for him a point of vantage from which he watched the world go past. On Sundays, however, all was changed. As he stood in the bay window, after finishing his beer, wiping his lips, and looking out into the street, McTeague was conscious of the difference. Nearly all the stores were closed. No wagons passed. A few people hurried up and down the sidewalks, dressed in cheap Sunday finery. A cable car went by. On the outside seats were a party of returning picnickers, the mother, the father, a young man, and a young girl, and three children. The two older people held empty lunch baskets in their laps, while the bands of the children's hats were stuck full of oak leaves. The girl carried a huge bunch of wilting poppies and wildflowers. As the car approached McTeague's window, the young man got up and swung himself off the platform, waving goodbye to the party. Suddenly, McTeague recognized him. There's Marcus Schuller he muttered behind his mustache. Marcus Scholler was the dentist's one intimate friend. The acquaintance had begun at the car conductor's coffee joint, where the two occupied the same table and met at every meal. Then they made the discovery that they both lived in the same flat, Marcus occupying a room on the floor above McTeague. On different occasions, McTeague had treated Marcus for an ulcerated tooth and had refused to accept payment. Soon it came to be an understood thing between them. They were pals. McTeague, listening, heard Marcus go upstairs to his room above. In a few minutes, his door opened again. McTeague knew that he had come out into the hall and was leaning over the banisters. "'Oh, Mac!' he called. McTeague came to his door. "'Hello. Is that you, Mark?' "'Sure,' answered Marcus. "'Come on up.' "'You come on down.' "'No, come on up.' "'Oh, you come on down.' "'Oh, you lazy duck,' retorted Marcus, coming down the stairs." "'Been out to the cliff house on a picnic,' he explained as he sat down on the bed lounge, "'with my uncle and his people, the Sipas, you know. "'By damn, it was hot,' he suddenly vociferated. "'Just look at that! Just look at that!' he cried, dragging at his limp collar. "'That's the third one since morning, it is. "'It is for a fact, and you got your stove going.' He began to tell about the picnic, talking very loud and fast, gesturing furiously, very excited over trivial details— Marcus could not talk without getting excited. You ought to have seen. You ought to have seen. I tell you, it was out of sight. It was. It was for a fact. Yes, yes, answered McTeague, bewildered, trying to follow. Yes, that's so. In recounting a certain dispute with an awkward bicyclist, in which it appeared he had become involved, Marcus quivered with rage. Say that again, says I to him. Just say that once more, and hear a rolling explosion of oaths. You'll go back to the city in the morgue wagon. Ain't I got a right to cross a street even? I'd like to know, without being run down. What? I say it's outrageous. I'd have knifed him in another minute. It was an outrage. I say it was an outrage. Sure it was, McTeague hastened to reply. Sure, sure. Oh, and we had an accident, shouted the other, suddenly off on another tack. It was awful. Trina was in the swing there. That's my cousin Trina. You know who I mean. And she fell out. By damn. I thought she'd killed herself, struck her face on a rock and knocked out a front tooth. It's a wonder she didn't kill herself. It is a wonder. It is for a fact. Ain't it now, huh? Ain't it? You ought to have seen. McTeague had a vague idea that Marcus Scholler was stuck on his cousin Trina. They kept company a good deal. Marcus took dinner with the Sipas every Saturday evening at their home at B Street Station, across the bay, 
and Sunday afternoons he and the family usually made little excursions into the suburbs. McTeague began to wonder dimly how it was that on this occasion Marcus had not gone home with his cousin. As sometimes happens, Marcus furnished the explanation upon the instant. I promised a duck up here on the avenue I'd call for his dog at four this afternoon. Marcus was old Grannis's assistant in a little dog hospital that the latter had opened in a sort of alley just off Polk Street. Some four blocks above, old Grannis lived in one of the back rooms of McTeague's flat. He was an Englishman and an expert dog surgeon, but Marcus Schuller was a bungler in the profession. His father had been a veterinary surgeon who had kept a livery stable nearby on California Street, and Marcus's knowledge of the diseases of domestic animals had been picked up in a haphazard way, much after the manner of McTeague's education. Somehow he managed to impress old Grannis, a gentle, simple-minded old man, with a sense of his fitness, bewildering him with a torrent of empty phrases that he delivered with fierce gestures and with a manner of the greatest conviction. "'You'd better come along with me, Mac,' observed Marcus. "'We'll get the duck's dog, and then we'll take a little walk, huh? You got nothing to do. Come along.' McTeague went out with him, and the two friends proceeded up to the avenue to the house where the dog was to be found. It was a huge, mansion-like place." set in an enormous garden that occupied a whole third of the block, and while Marcus tramped up the front steps and rang the doorbell boldly to show his independence, McTeague remained below on the sidewalk, gazing stupidly at the curtained windows, the marble steps, and the bronze griffins, troubled and a little confused by all this massive luxury. After they had taken the dog to the hospital and had left him to whimper behind the wire netting, they returned to Polk Street and had a glass of beer in the back room of Joe Frenna's corner grocery. Ever since they had left the huge mansion on the avenue, Marcus had been attacking the capitalists, a class which he pretended to execrate. It was a pose which he often assumed, certain of impressing the dentist. Marcus had picked up a few half-truths of political economy. It was impossible to say where, and as soon as the two had settled themselves to their beer in Frenna's back room, he took up the theme of the labor question. He discussed it at the top of his voice, vociferating, shaking his fists, exciting himself with his own noise. He was continually making use of the stock phrases of the professional politician, phrases he had caught at some of the ward rallies and ratification meetings. These rolled off his tongue with incredible emphasis, appearing at every turn of his conversation. Outraged constituencies, cause of labor, wage earners, opinions biased by personal interests, eyes blinded by party prejudice. McTeague listened to him, awestruck. There's where the evil lies, Marcus would cry. The masses must learn self-control. It stands to reason. Look at the figures. Look at the figures. Decrease the number of wage earners and you increase wages, don't you? Don't you? Absolutely stupid and understanding never a word, McTeague would answer. Yes, yes, that's it. Self-control. That's the word. It's the capitalists that's ruining the cause of labor, shouted Marcus, banging the table with his fist till the beer glasses danced. White-livered drones, traitors, with their livers white as snow eaten the bread of widows and orphans. That's where the evil lies. Stupefied with his clamor, McTeague answered, wagging his head. Yes, that's it. I think it's their livers. Suddenly Marcus fell calm again, forgetting his pose all in an instant. Say, Mac, I told my cousin Trina to come round and see you about that tooth of hers. She'll be in tomorrow, I guess. End of chapter one.